All right. Well, good evening, team. Um, Tonight, we are starting a brand new series um, that we've actually done before. It's called Summer in the Psalms. And this is our third summer in a row doing this series, and that's intentional. And I'm glad it's our third summer in a row because the thing is, the Psalms is 150 chapters long. It's the biggest book in the Bible. And yet, when you ask someone, what is the book of Psalms about? Nobody has an answer, you know? If you go to church and someone asks you, what is the Psalms about? You'll say like, well, it's like, it's like songs, but it's, but it's different. And that's like as far as it goes. You know what I mean? That's as far as we know about the Psalms. So there's so much to teach you. There's so much to learn. Um, and doing it over and over in the summer, one, we'll never run out of material. There's 150 of them. But two, we can do the same ones over again and drill deeper into them. So there's just so much opportunity, and I'm glad we're doing this. Okay, So we're starting a new series called Summer in the Psalms. A um, little bit of an overview about the Psalms before we get started. Okay, If you open your Bible in the middle, it's roughly right in there. Um, and so, the Psalms are, it's 150 chapters, right? Psalms is a collection of 150 different Hebrew songs, poems, and prayers collected all throughout Israel's history. They were used usually, the the book of Psalms was usually used by choirs in the temple in the Old Testament. It's put together by theme, not by time. And that's kind of why it's hard to read, because it's not this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. That's not how it goes. It's, It's more like... This is a psalm on suffering written 100 years ago. This is a psalm on suffering written 30 minutes ago. We'll put them together back to back in a section on suffering. You see that? It's not really by time. It's by theme. The psalms, and and this is marked in your Bible, the psalms are divided into five books. So the book of Psalms is divided into five different books, okay? Nearly every psalm in book one was written by King David. Remember David and Goliath? You know what I'm talking about? You're tracking with me? Um, Nearly every psalm in book one is written by King David, except for Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Now, why would you, in a book of psalms written by King David, why would you start it with two that we don't know who wrote them? Because these two psalms set the tone for the entire book. So, If you want to know, if you just kind of want that big picture view of what the book of Psalms is about, 150 chapters, what am I supposed to do with that? You know what I mean? If you want the big picture of what Psalms is about, read Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2, and then you'll have a grasp of the whole picture. Psalm 1 talks about how those who obey the word of God will be blessed. Listen to Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2. How blessed, and there it is, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So this man follows the law of the Lord and is blessed by it. That's kind of the message of Psalm 1. And then comes Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2 tells of a future king who is coming, who will make everything right. Listen to Psalm chapter 2, verses 6, 11, and 12. And this is the Lord speaking. But as for me, says the Lord, I have installed my king. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Pay honor to the Son 
that he will not become angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath may soon be revealed. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So as we're obeying God's word, Psalm 1, in comes Psalm 2 to say, this king, as you're obeying, keep looking because this king is coming. This son of God is coming who will punish those who are against his people. Because if you're against his people, you're against him. The people are an extension of the king. But look at those who follow him. They will rest. How blessed are those who take rest in him. So kind of a summary, right? Let me spark note this for you guys. The summary. Psalms is a book that teaches God's people about prayer as they seek to follow the word of God and wait for the coming king. It teaches us about prayer as we, as we follow the word of God and wait for the coming king. This coming king is a huge theme throughout all the Old Testament, but especially in the Psalms. Remember, Psalms are divided into five books, okay? Just kind of a quick glance at these five books. Book one of Psalms. And again, this is marked in your Bible, so don't go crazy here. Book one is Psalms 3 through 41. And it's basically an extension of Psalms 1 and 2. It's all about obeying God's word and how a king will come one day. So it extends on Psalms 1 and 2. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72. Okay, after the Exodus, remember the Exodus with Moses and the ten plagues and the ten commandments and all that? They free Israel from Egypt, right? After the Exodus, the Israelites go to the land of Canaan, the promised land, which we'll talk about more in just a second. They go to the land of Canaan, but their sin is still so terrible that they are kicked out of the land of Canaan. They're sent into exile into other countries. To be exiled just means to be kicked out. So they're kicked out in other countries and they're in exile. Book 2 is after the Exodus, the Jews are kicked out of the promised land and they're sent away and they miss worshiping God. So they write about how they miss worshiping God specifically in their temple. That's the theme of book two. They miss worshiping God in the temple. And book two is about how this new king will bring them back to worship him in this temple. Book three of the Psalms, Psalm 73 to 89. Book three is almost a letter written to those in exile. Okay? Or a long text message to, to meet the kids. You see what I'm saying? It's just a long letter written to these guys in exile, stating that God will keep his promise and bring them back through this coming king. So it's a letter to those in exile saying, Don't worry, God has promised to bring you back, and he will, and this king will do it. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106 says how this king will come. And then book 5, Psalm 107 through the end, focuses on the king, who he is and what he will do. Psalm 110 is in book 5, and it is about that king. And that's where we'll be tonight. So go ahead and flip over to Psalms 110. That's where we'll be tonight. Now, though it's not very well known now, Psalm 110 was very well known in Jesus' day. A couple quick facts here. Psalm 110 is quoted over 20 times in the New Testament. 
Jesus uses this psalm over and over and over again to explain who he is. When people say, explain to me who you are, Jesus refers to Psalm 110 over and over and over. Peter, in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first ever Christian sermon, and he uses Psalm 110. So the thing about that, the first ever sermon, the first ever Christian sermon, I don't know what joke Peter used to open up with to like cool everybody down, but the text that he used was Psalm 110. And then the last one, in the book of Hebrews, it's basically the history of how God saves his people. That's what Hebrews is about, the history of how God saves his people. And while writing this history, the author of Hebrews goes back to Psalm 110 over and over again and over again. In a way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted chapter in the entire Bible in Jesus' day. Like in our day, John 3.16. Most people at least have heard about John 3.16, and they know it even if they've never set foot in church. Psalm 110 was like that in Jesus' day. Does that make sense? It's kind of their John 3.16, their verse that everybody knew over and over and over again. This psalm is very interesting. Remember, it's in book 5. So it describes this coming king. And and according to Psalm 110, he is a king that is divine and human. So he's a God and human. And he is strong and weak. How can you be strong and weak? We'll see. The book of Psalms shows us just what the Old Testament shows us. A king is on the way. Listen to Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, which is towards the end of the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's this king. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On the colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, his rule shall be from sea to sea. So this king is coming, but how do we know who he is? One way we know is this. He will be a descendant of King David. He will come, Remember David and Goliath again. He will be a direct blood descendant of King David. He will come through David's line. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 16. This is God speaking to David. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David's kingdom will never end because someone in David's line will always sit on the, fr- on the throne, including this king who will reign forever. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this king who is descended from David is coming. He is over and over again in the Old Testament, this king. He is called the Christos. The Christos means the anointed one. The chosen king, Jesus Christ. That's where Christ comes from. It means Jesus Christos, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, our chosen king. And the Jews thought the Christos was going to come and overthrow the Romans. Remember, the Jewish people are being controlled by the Romans. This Christos will come and overthrow the Romans, overthrow all their oppressors. And this is where this has to do with you, and this is why this is important. What oppressors? Where did these oppressors come from? It feels like the Jews are always being ruled by somebody else. How did this happen? 
Okay, a little history lesson. It's not going to be a quiz. It's summertime, so don't freak out. But again, a little history here. Back to Exodus, right? When the Jewish people are freed from slavery in Egypt with, with Moses and the ten plagues and all that, they're set free. They are taken to what is called the promised land, the land of Canaan where they will dwell with God. This is why this is important. The promised land is everywhere in the Bible. Why is it so important? Here's why. A return to the promised land was like a return to the Garden of Eden. And here's why. Do you remember in Psalms book 2, they miss, they're in exile, and they miss God. They miss being with God and worshiping Him, specifically in what building? Do you remember? Help me out. Good. The temple. They miss worshiping God in the temple. Well, why, why the temple? Because in the Old Testament... God dwelt in the temple of Jerusalem. That's where the presence of God was. To be away from the temple is to be away from the presence of God. God dwelt with his, don't don't miss this, God dwelt with his people in the temple just like God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is one and the same. Anytime archaeologists dig up, about to get really interesting here, anytime archaeologists dig up a temple, Do you know how they can automatically tell that it's a Jewish temple? If it faces to the east. Why the east? Why does that matter? When Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, they were banished to the east. If you look back at Cain and Abel, you know I'm talking about Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. When Cain is banished from the presence of the Lord, he lives east of Eden. The temple, temple, thousands of years later, faces east. So when you are walking down the steps, leaving it, you are heading east, away from the presence of God. You're leaving the temple. You're leaving the presence of God. Just like Adam and Eve were banished east to leave the presence of God. And when you go in the temple, you're heading west, back into the presence of God. Just like Adam and Eve would have gone west to get back into the Garden of Eden if their sin hadn't kept them away. Now flash forwards of to thousands of years later. They're dwelling in the promised land again with God, and yet their sin is so great that God banishes them from the promised land. Doesn't that sound familiar? What happened in the promised land is a bigger version of what happened in the Garden of Eden. The promise, that's why the promised land and the temple were so important, because to lose them was the Garden of Eden happening all over again. That's why it's so devastating that they were exiled. It's history repeating itself because of how sinful we are. First, the Assyrians came and sent the Jews into exile. Then the Babylonians came and exiled them even more. Do you remember the story? Okay, let's, let's turn the clock back to our Sunday school greatest hits. You, raise your hand. You remember Daniel in the lion's den, right? You know what I'm talking about? Medley's there. He's, he's like, Phew. you don't remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel in the lion's den. Um, Sunday school classic, right? One of our greatest hits. In the story, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because everyone was supposed to pray to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But Daniel prays to God. But if you go back in the story, you'll see that when Daniel prays, he prays facing the city of Jerusalem. Why would he face the city of Jerusalem? Because Daniel wasn't in Jerusalem anymore. He was in exile in Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar was king. And the presence of the Lord was in the temple 
in Jerusalem. So by facing Jerusalem, he's literally trying to pray to the Lord in Jerusalem. Daniel longed to be back in his city. But more than that, he longed to be with his God. Just like the Israelites in the Psalms wanted to be with their God again. Just like Adam and Eve wanted to be back in the garden. And just like you do now. All of us want that too. We long to be back in the garden. Even if you've never heard of the Garden of Eden. Even if you have no clue what I'm talking about. In your heart... There is a longing, a hole that cannot be filled unless you are back in the garden. It's not about the garden. It's who you're with there. There is a hole that cannot be filled until you're brought back to the presence of the Lord in the garden. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy... Does this not sound familiar to us in our lives? If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The reason nothing here can satisfy is because you were not meant to be just here. That's why when you buy things or hang out with people, that's fine and that's good, but you always go home and there's that, that extra Because you weren't made to be fulfilled in those people and those things. You were made to walk with God in the Garden of Eden, which is why losing Eden was so devastating. That's what's been lost. And only the Christos, the chosen king, can bring us back. That's why Psalm 110 is so important. Because it tells us who this king is who will bring us back. So let's look at this king. Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is David writing about this future king, this descendant of him. Verse 1. The Lord God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. All right, let's just go ahead and stop right there. This is why that's weird, okay? David is writing about his son, a future king to come, right? David is writing about his son. So why does David call this guy Lord? Did you catch that? Look at verse 1 again. The Lord, now that's God. That's Yahweh, the Old Testament, the whole thing. The Lord says to my Lord. Why does David call him Lord? Shouldn't David call him son? Shouldn't David say, the Lord says to my offspring? That's a very nice biblical, you know. The Lord says to my offspring. The Lord says to my descendant. Why does... David call him Lord. But look at what the Lord says to this guy. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now let's just kind of back up here a second. The Lord God, the sovereign king of the universe, the creator of all things, he invites this person, this future king, to sit at his right hand. In those days, to sit at the right hand of the king was essentially to be on level with the king. You are sharing the throne with the king. In Genesis, you got Joseph, you know, sold into slavery, winds up with Pharaoh. Joseph sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. Joseph shares the power with Pharaoh. He shares the throne with Pharaoh. So based on Psalm 110 so far, this guy is coming who is a son of David, 
descended from David, so he's human, yet David worships him. So he's divine. And he's a human person, but he's equal with God at God's right hand. Well, who fits those categories? In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 45, Jesus kind of puts it back on the Pharisees, and he uses Psalm 110 to do it. So listen to Matthew 22, 41 to 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asks them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, or the Christos? Who is he? So Jesus says, Who do you think this king that's going to come, who do you think this is? And the Pharisees said to him, The son of David. And Jesus said to him, How is it then that David calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the people could not answer. So Jesus does exactly what we just talked about. Jesus is like, How can he be his Lord and his son? How can it be both? It doesn't make sense. And the people couldn't answer him. And Jesus is saying, you can't answer this question if the ruler is just human. If the ruler's only human, it's not going to fit. This isn't going to make sense. Because David wouldn't worship his human son. He's got to be with God too. Jesus is saying, the answer to this question is me. You are looking at the answer to this question. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 110. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Israel, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, the Lord is the one extending the scepter. You know the scepter, the, like the brass thing that the king holds, the little stick thing? It's probably like a better way to say that, but he extends the scepter. The scepter is held by the one who rules. And the Lord is extending the scepter. But the king is the one who reigns. This Christos is the one who reigns. So if he reigns, why is God extending the scepter? Because this man will rule through God's power. They will share the same rule. Jesus is saying in Matthew 22, this psalm, you can't explain this psalm. He's a son and he worships him. He rules, but God extends the scepter? You can't explain this if he's just a human. People thought that this Christos in Psalm 110 was just another king, just a regular man who would come and beat up the Romans. That's what they thought was going to happen. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to put an end to more than anything the Romans could ever do. He's saying to the Jews, Your biggest problem isn't that men rule over you. You have to go deeper. Why do men rule over you? Why have they ruled over you for centuries? Assyria, Babylon, the Romans. They rule over you. They didn't rule over you until you got kicked out of the promised land. They rule over you because you've left me. That's the real problem. You've left God. You don't need a military leader. You need a leader to do what Daniel wanted. You need a leader to bring you back to God. And I am God. I'm coming to you now. Men is not your problem, so having men as your king won't solve it. I'm coming to put an end to the hole in your heart. 
I'm coming to put an end to the things that you think you cannot get out of if you want me to. You've been ruled by countless men, most of them evil. Look at me. But the real solution is if you will let me rule you. We think of Jesus as the lamb, the friend, the savior, the good guy, the helper, the comforter, the healer, the son of God. And he is all those things. But make no mistake, the Bible shows Jesus as a king. But he's not just a king. He's also a priest. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The future king, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's usually where everybody kind of tunes out when I bring that up. Melchizedek. Kind of, who is this guy? You are a priest according to Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? Here it is. Melchizedek is a priest in the Old Testament. Okay? And Abraham meets this guy in Genesis chapter 14. But here's why Melchizedek is interesting. Because we never actually see him die. Melchizedek just kind of fades out of the story. And in the book of Hebrews, years later, the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 110. And he uses this verse and he says, Jesus is like Melchizedek in that you'll never see Jesus die either. He is a king forever, but he is also a priest forever. And here's why this is important. King and priest. Kings ruled over the people. Kings made decisions for the people. But priests, their job was sympathy and service. Priests cared for the poor and the sick. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to donate money to the poor, you took it to the priest. Because the priest decided where the money went. The priest knew the poor. In Mark chapter 2, with the man with leprosy, remember Jesus heals him and he says, go to the priest, because the priest was over those who were sick. Kings represent God. Priests represent the people. Just like Jesus is the Son of God, and yet he took the form of the people. Priest and king meet in Psalm 110. Priest and king also meet in Jesus. He is the king in Psalm 110. Why is it important for you to understand that? That he is priest and king. Why is it important for you to know that? Because you will never understand the gospel unless you understand that Jesus is both. A lot of church kids in here. A lot of non-church kids in here. Thank God. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad. I want you here. And we kind of hear one side or the other. We hear, he's the king. You better obey him. You're in trouble. There's going to be hell to pay, literally. If you don't obey this king, it's going to be awful. But then we also hear, he is love. He is grace. Look at this picture of him holding the sheep. Where, whose sheep is that? We don't know, but he's holding it. He's so nice. And we hear, we hear both. He's either this king that you have to be afraid of, or he's this gentle priest that you can take advantage of. Because you don't have to obey. Because he's going to forgive you anyway. Or you better obey him, or you have no idea the horror that you will see if you don't. And you will never understand the gospel until you see that Christ is both of those together. To balance each other out, but to make a beautiful 
thing. We talk. He, he cares for the weak. He rules and judges. He's not just the priest. And a lot of times we only preach the priest. He's not just soft, cry your eyes out love. He also rules fiercely. And we must, listen to me, we must obey him. We talk all the time about his kindness. And that's good. And we strive after and beg for the forgiveness of the priest, of this kind priest. But look at me. When was the last time you asked for the strength to obey the divine king? Have you ever asked this king for the strength to obey him? He is a lamb and a lion. And we see that when he stares the Pharisees straight in the face. He make, remember when people are doing money changing in the temple? He makes a whip and he literally kicks these people out of church. That's the lion. That's the king. And yet when he tells... So there's that. There's the you must obey. But then there's also when he tries to explain his love for his people, he uses the example of a bad kid returning home, of a prodigal returning home and his father running towards him to embrace him. Now in those days, picture this for me, in those days the dads wore kind of a robe, right? Now the father runs toward him. What's the problem with running in a robe? Ladies, if you try to, if like, I don't know, something happens and you have to run in a dress, how's that going to go? Pretty poorly. So what do you got to do? Yeah, pull that thing up a little bit, right? Just above the ankles, okay? Keep it respectful. Let's go. So you pull it up, right? And then you run. But here's the thing. That was completely unacceptable in those days. Because for a father to do that in public is, to, is totally undignified. And so Jesus uses the example of a dad losing all dignity to be with his son. And he says, that's me. That's the king that asks you to obey him. So you see, it's both together. He is a king and a priest, according to Psalm 110. He is strong and weak. And you'll never see Jesus clearly until you see him as both. Do you ever wonder why, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey? You know the story? On Palm Sunday, they wave the palm, and he rides into the city on a donkey. The prophecy, and here's the question why not a horse? Makes sense. Why not ride in on a horse? Why ride in on a donkey? The prophecy in Zechariah that we read earlier says, the Christos, the true king, he will ride in on a donkey. But why is that? That fact that he does that makes him different and better than any other king in history. And I'll show you why. In those days, a king riding into the city on a horse was an important image because it wasn't just a king. That was the image of a conquering king. Think about how many wars there were in those days. That position of conquering king is incredibly important. In the story of Esther, Haman, the bad guy, he's very arrogant. And the king asks Haman, he says, what should the king give to the servant that he loves? And Haman thinks it's him. And Haman says, one of his requests is, let your servant ride in on one of your horses. That's kind of a random, you know what I mean? That's kind of a strange request. Well, not in those days. Because if that had actually happened, Haman would have ridden into the city as a conquering king. This strange request was one of the best requests. 
Jesus, flash forward a thousand years later, Jesus rides into town on Palm Sunday and they're waving the palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means salvation is here. That's what Hosanna means. Salvation is here. And they think it means it's party time. You're here to free us from the Romans. You're here to defeat our enemies in battle. Jesus is a conquering king, so why ride in on a donkey? Well, here's why. Donkeys worked in the field. While the men rode into town looking royal and awesome, the donkey was in the back carrying all the stuff. Donkeys were everywhere. They were no special thing to see, right? They were dirty and insignificant. They symbolized being insignificant. Jesus riding into the city as a conquering king on an insignificant donkey is his way of saying, I'm going to conquer, but not like you think. I'm going to conquer, but it's going to be through weakness. Instead of a crown, I go to the cross. A crown won't solve your problems. A crown can defeat the Romans, but the cross can conquer your heart. Your sin keeps you away, not the Romans. That's what Jesus' words were. Your sin keeps you from me, not the Romans. Your sin keeps you away from God, not your bad situation. Not your insecurity, not boring sermons. Sorry. Your sin keeps you from God. But, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus, the mighty King, the Savior of the Psalms, has come to conquer your heart. He is a king and a priest. He is weak and strong. He can meet any need you have because He is your greatest need. And He comes for your heart. The very thing that separates you from God is the very thing He has come to take over. He died to bring you back to the garden. To fill the hole in your heart. Is it, is it time? Is it time for some of you? You were created to be in the garden with God. You were, we were about to spend a week in VBS telling students you were built for this. You were designed for God. That's why there's so many frustrations in your life because you are trying to plug into things that your soul can't plug into so your soul withers away. You were built for God. Is it time? He can bring you back. Let's pray.